This reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Man, hey, good morning. Welcome again to Trinity Community Church. It's really good to see you, especially if you are new. We are so, so glad you are here and would love to get you plugged into the life of the church. Uh, over the course of this month, we have been in a short series called Jesus, Money, and Eternity, Spiritual Formation in a Consumer Culture. And today and, and next Sunday, we're closing out the series with essentially two sermons on generosity. And so we've looked at a number of different topics uh, related to money and possessions and work. It's a, it is a complex issue, but we're going we're gonna to focus our, our next two Sundays today and next week on generosity. And so my, my goal for this morning is that it would be the most encouraging, the most helpful, the most life-giving message you've ever heard on giving until next week. Uh, so we'll see if we can accomplish that, that huge goal. But if you remember how we framed this series, we believe that the ultimate goal of our lives is to become like Christ. That's, that's how we most glorify God. It's to become like Christ in His person and in His way of life. And there is then no mature spiritual formation apart from a Christ-like relationship to money. And so we're, we're trying to look at the way of Jesus. We've been looking at the Gospels and the New Testament letters, some of Paul's writings. And, and what we're seeing is that the grace of God makes us radically secure. It makes us wonderfully content, makes us remarkably generous. And so our guide today is the Apostle Paul, this same wise sage who gave us Galatians for the whole uh, fall semester as we looked at it last year, this St. Paul, who gave us the Life in the Spirit series this spring, he's our guide again today. And, and 1 Timothy is our, our book, and so Paul is writing to this young pastor into the churches in and around Ephesus, which BTW, by the way, Ephesus is the financial center of the Greco-Roman world. So he's writing into what is maybe the, maybe the closest, most similar context to where we are today in modern America. And so we're going to look at three things, the secret of contentment, the practice of generosity, and then the mystery of reward. So let's pray, and then we'll do the stuff. 
Father God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Lord, we have been seeking to have our hearts reshaped and reformed for your glory, for our own good, for the sake of others. And so, Lord, continue this good work that you have begun in us. And Father, would you make us like your son, Jesus, in every way? We pray in his name. Amen. All right, we will start with the secret of contentment and begin in verse 6. Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, Paul uses this word contentment in verse 6, and then he brings up content again in verse 7. And we've talked about this before, but contentment is one of these old virtues that the church used to talk about all the time that has now somewhat been lost in our contemporary church culture. But the Greek word for content is actually the combination of two words, the word full and the word soul. And content is, a, is just a combination of those two words in the Greek. And so to be content means to have a full soul. It's not full in itself or full of itself, but it's full by itself. It's a soul that has all that it needs. And contentment is essential on this path to true freedom that we've been seeking. Our culture describes freedom as, as having everything we need to, to buy everything we want. And yet it's so clear in the scriptures that true freedom is contentment. It's having all that we need, not because we have everything, but because we, we have everything we need in God. There's, there's a secret of contentment that we'll see. And so verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And this is a message that is consistent all across the scriptures. And so if you go to Proverbs 30, the, the wise teacher says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And so this is a, a remarkably humble and wise and content prayer. I read this and I think, who, who can actually pray that? Like who actually prays, don't give me any more than just what I need for right now. I mean, that's an incredible prayer and it's an incredibly wise prayer prayer, because we know our hearts are drawn to, to riches and to self-satisfaction on one hand, and then on, on the other hand, to bitterness and resentment if we don't have what we need. And so this is a wonderfully appropriate prayer, and contentment is a goal of our spiritual lives. Richard Foster writes this in the Freedom of Simplicity, contemporary culture is plagued by the passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful sentence. The first one, we're plagued by a passion to possess. I mean, first of all, that's just an aesthetically pleasing sentence, like the writer in me just loves that. But we are plagued, we, we are sort of diseased 
with this desire to possess things. This is a, a culturally transmitted disease. All right, that's my phrase. You can have it if you want it. I don't know if you like it. But this is a, a culturally transmitted sickness that we have. The passion to possess more and more, it's like, it's like playing with dynamite while smoking. It's, you can have that one too. It's a terrible idea. Now, verse 9 gets into this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is saying this love of money, this desire for more, to get rich, it says, it says that it leads to all sorts of other problems. He actually mentions four things. It leads to foolish and harmful desires. It leads to grief. It plunges people into ruin and destruction, and it even leads people away from the faith. I think that greed is probably the hardest thing to talk about in the American church. Like we have some hard topics, but greed is one of the most difficult thing to talk about. It's difficult to hear. It's difficult to teach on. I've never seen somebody show up to accountability group and say, you know, I'm just kind of struggling with greed this week. You know, honestly, in our culture, greedy behavior isn't even called greed. It's just called normal. But greed involves longing, comparison, scheming, grinding to get more, trading in and leveling up. It's just the language of our culture. And because we, we your pastors, love you, we want to be able to talk about this. And I believe there are some symptoms of greed that can help normalize it a little bit because I don't think greed is just something that a couple of people deal with and you can spot them like, you know, based on what they look like or what they drive or something. I think every one of us struggles with greed to one degree or another. It's, it's maybe like anger. All of us have some of it in us. It's just a matter of how much. And so here are the, some of the symptoms of greed. Either I've felt within me or seen closely. I think about choosing a career largely because of the income associated with it. Moving from one place to another, uprooting relationally just to take a higher salary. Being unwilling to part with any possessions even when you can't really afford them. Frequently getting newer and better things. It could be cars, phones, clothing, watches, road bikes. <laughs> even though the one you have is currently working just fine. It could even be finding yourself just aimlessly shopping online when you're tired or bored. I think probably every one of us got caught by one of those things, and maybe by a few of them. This is something I, I honestly struggle with and have struggled with for a long time. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I find myself wanting God and wanting Jesus and wanting everything else if you can relate to that. I'm, I'm more of a spender than my wife is. I have a very expensive hobby in cycling. That doesn't help. This is an area where I regularly have to reflect, have to repent. And there are some struggles and temptations that, that get easier with time. The longer you're a Christian, the more you, you mature, the older you get. And I don't think this is one of them. 
This is one that's actually gotten more difficult with time and more, more difficult with age. As I'm, I'm sneaking up on 40, I'm not there yet, but you know, it sees me coming. It's only become a bigger desire within me to, to just have what I want and to have more and to have nicer. And it's getting harder to recognize it, harder to uproot it. It's a big part of why I wanted to do this series is because some of you are, are young. You're just starting your first job or you're in grad school. And I want you to find true freedom in relationship to money and possessions very early in your life. Others of us are, are less young. And, and you may even feel like you've not gotten this right over your Christian life. But no matter where you are, there is hope, there is a way to change, there is a, a, a good news for you to adopt. It's never too late. Paul is saying that true freedom can be found. We can find godliness with contentment. He says something similar in Philippians 4. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now this, I love this phrase, the secret of being content or the secret of contentment. It's to be unaffected by having a lot or having nothing. I mean, how is it even possible? He describes it in verse 13 by focusing on the God who gives strength, by, by immersing ourselves in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The secret of contentment is actually the source of contentment. It's God himself. When you have God, you have everything. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. If we have food and clothing, let us be content. Give me neither poverty nor riches. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. And so this is contentment. And there's a, a path to contentment. And that's the second thing, the practice of generosity. So verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And Paul is making a direct connection here between contentment having an eternal perspective and generosity. These things will, will flow straight through from contentment to an eternal perspective to generosity. Generosity is a, a critical practice for developing contentment as well. And so it goes both ways. But giving is one of those things that helps to pull up the roots of greed in our hearts and moves us toward freedom. And practically for most of us, generosity will often look like a tithe, giving 10% of your income to God's kingdom. The tithe was a biblical command established in the Old Testament. Leviticus 27 commands a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or fruit, it belongs to the Lord. Numbers 18 says that the tithe of all Israel should be delivered to the Levites for the practice of worship and the good of the poor and needy. Deuteronomy 14 says, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce 
each year. But the real banger comes in Malachi 3. Israel is in a season of decline. They've turned away from God. They're struggling and suffering, and God speaks to his people through Malachi. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? And God says, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. That's powerful. Now, the New Testament doesn't explicitly command a tithe. Instead, every single passage on money focuses on the heart. The matter is not the amount. The, the matter is having a transformed heart, and generosity is both a fruit of a changed heart and the pathway to a changed heart. Jesus' teachings about the law are helpful here. He says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He never cancels an Old Testament law, but he only, he only deepens them and personalizes them. So you can think of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said that, that adultery is wrong. I tell you that lust is just as wrong. You've heard that murder is wrong. I tell you that anger is just as sinful. He's always taking the Old Testament law and, and turning it up, turning it to 11. Okay, that's a play on the Ten Commandments. You can have that as well. Now, Tim Keller, who, uh, who I love, I quote him every week. He just passed away last week. Uh, he said this, If we're going to think about our relationship to the Old Testament tithe, I'd do it like this. Surely we're more blessed than the Old Testament saints. Why then would we be expected to be less generous? So Christians should see the Old Testament tithe as a kind of minimum percentage of their income to give away. In fact, it was in this, this interview from a couple years ago that Dr. Keller said one of his regrets in ministry was that he didn't talk more about money and generosity. Now, it seems that tithing is not a, a goal to reach if you're able, but it's a floor to start from. Basic generosity, a tithe for most people, it's, it's enough to require a small change in lifestyle. You have to live on a little bit less. But in our culture, for most of us, it's, it's not really going to translate to like actual poverty and hunger. It's enough to make us lower our standard of living. It's a way of, of us praying, give me neither poverty nor riches, but let me live within my limits. And this helps us to reset our view of money and possessions. It's a resource to steward wisely. Our view here at Trinity is that almost everyone should tithe. There may be exceptions, but in almost every situation I've encountered, a tithe seems like basic faithfulness. And we encourage you to give a tithe to the place that provides your spiritual care, which is probably here. But we don't demand it. We don't demand a tithe Rather, we hope that you feel like giving here, feel like giving to missions, feel like supporting adoption support or, or local ministries or, or whatever it is. The goal for us is not that we meet our budget, but that your hearts are being transformed. Secondary goal is meeting the budget. We care about your generosity because we care about your souls. 
Now, I know, I admit, basic generosity, even, even just giving a tithe is still challenging. I'll, I'll share an example, and I hesitate to talk about our own giving because Jesus says to give in secret, and yet we pastors are called to be examples to the flock in every way in First Peter. And so Jesse and I, we have, we have at least tithed uh, for the 17 years we've been married and out of college. Uh, every month we've at least tithed. But a couple of years ago, we had a, a death in my family, and we received a, a bit of inheritance money in, in a couple different chunks. So this is not change your life forever money. This is, it's been very helpful money, okay? And so we immediately gave some to the church, but we were in the process of buying a house. Uh, we were renovating the kitchen in the new house, and so we didn't give 10% right away. And surprise, the kitchen took way more money than they said it would originally. Don't know if you've ever had that happen. They got us. Had to go with our second choice of contractors. This is why this guy's number two. Now, some of you might say, well, well, inheritance isn't the same as earned income. You don't have to give a tithe off that. And as a rule of thumb, I think if, if you're doing theological gymnastics to get out of generosity, it's probably not a good sign. So over the winter during Advent, I, I was studying the minor prophets for a month. And when I reached that Malachi 3 passage, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I felt, I felt really deeply convicted. I mean, we had maybe given 3% or 4% or something. And then all these things started to flood into my mind. I thought, well, I don't know exactly how much we gave. It was probably close to 10%. It's like you can find that with online banking, like immediately. I was tempted to say, well, it's been, it's been six months, you know, maybe there's some kind of like statute of limitations that, you know, I don't, it's been a while. And more importantly, uh, my wife had gone a few months without income. And so we were actually pretty, pretty tight. And, and to make up this tithe would mean to wipe out all of our, our savings, not like our retirement, but our savings. And so I prayed, and I just felt like this was the right thing to do, and, and it's what I wanted to do. I, I wish we had done it on the front end, but now I, I really wanted to. Step two is talking to my wife. Uh, so I talked to her, began to explain it, and as soon as I got into it, she just said, hey, let's do it. Just figure out what the tithe is and write the check. And, and so we did, and I'm, I'm so glad that we did. But I share this only to say that I struggle with this as much as anyone. It is, it is not easy for me to let go of money. We are in this money-obsessed consumer culture together. We've all been brainwashed to think that our money is ours completely, thanks to our radical individualism. And this is a major threat to our Christ-likeness. Let it go. Release it. Every time we give money away, we are dethroning it from our hearts. And again, man, it felt so good to give away, to just restore that tithe, brought more peace, more joy, a, a much looser grip on money. BTW, if you are just reading the Bible every day, you will be confronted and invited over and over and over to a different view of money. It's a dangerous thing to read your Bible every day. All right, here's the last thing. The mystery of rewards. Verse 12 says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Verse 19 says, in this way, they, the, the rich, the comfortable, will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age. 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so Paul is writing to believers that are already one with Christ. They already have their eternal life secured, and yet he's saying, take hold of it. I mean, really grab it, hold on to it, live into this reality. This life is not all there is. And this life is actually not even the primary one. Like this is the blip on the radar and the eternal life is the one that goes on forever. And furthermore, eternal life is not something that begins when we die. It's something that begins when we take Christ into our hearts. We are living an eternal kind of life even now. And so generosity, Paul says, lays up a treasure in the coming age so that we can take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, this verse 19, this is the verse that's been like, it's just captivated my, my mind and my heart this week. He says, our, our giving now lays up a treasure for later so that we can take hold of the later life now. Did you get that? Would it be helpful if I put up a hand-drawn illustration? There it is. Our giving now lays up a treasure for later which helps us take hold of that later eternal life now. Well, it's kind of a remarkable thought, isn't it? We'll look at the, the first half and then the second half. The first half says, our giving now lays up a treasure for later. We might be uncomfortable with some of the language around eternal rewards in the scriptures. We saw last week Jesus tell his disciples, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive, and then at the end he says, to receive that in the age to come, eternal life. So he's saying nobody that's left all this will fail to receive in the age to come, eternal life, that later life. He's saying our self-sacrifice for Jesus and for the gospel and for the kingdom, it will produce an eternity of rewards. Now, I don't take the whole mansions in heaven view where what we give translates to like bigger dwelling places. Honestly, I think that would be disappointing. I would rather have the spiritual blessings, the peace and the joy for all of eternity, like to the maximum. And I hope and I believe that that's the case, that our level of generosity here, not in a dollar amount, but in terms of our actual sacrifice, it leads to a greater experience of God for all eternity. Now, while we understand that, I think it's the second half of this verse that's most wild. So that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. That we take hold of the later life now. The life that is truly life, the capital L life, is available to us right now. Jesus actually says, the, the full quote from Matthew 19, I'll read it. He says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes and brothers, mothers, sisters, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So the age to come is actually just tacked on there at the end, but he's primarily talking about some kind of blessings in this life. He's emphasizing that our self-sacrifice, which could include generosity as well as serving, as well as being persecuted for the gospel, 
it will be returned a hundred times over in this life. Like Malachi 3, restore the tithe and I will throw open the floodgates of blessing. What is the blessing in, in Malachi? It's described in terms of peace, inner security, personal flourishing. And so it is a legit motivation for your giving to be to receive greater peace in this life. All right, you can take the slide down. I think we've seen enough of my handwriting. And so while it is a legitimate motivation, it is not the only one, and it's not even the primary one. The primary motivations of giving are that it be an overflow of gratitude to God, that it be an expression of our love for the church, and that it would be a reflection of our desire to uproot the, the insidious power of greed in our lives. There are a lot of motivations to give. The author Robert Capon has my favorite quote on money. I've shared this before, but it's so good. I'm allowed to do it every time I teach on money. Here it is. There is, of course, a cure for the malaise. It's called giving. You would think perhaps that the Christian church with its gospel of grace would get this straight, but it seldom does. All it should really say to its members is, look, you need to give money away in order to sass the system of money back. Let us have some of what you give away and we'll get rid of it for you in all the crazy ways we can think of. What it actually says to them, however, is we need money to make this shop look respectable. Do you see the church acts far more often like an institution selling a product than one offering liberty to slaves of the system? Like I said the first week, there's no big ask coming. There's no campaign to support. There's no brilliant vision that needs dollars. Instead, we want you to sass the system back. Don't be sassed by the, the culture that we are in. Sass it first by giving away as much as you can. In doing so, you're literally setting yourself and others free. You're establishing the liberation of yourself and others. This is the invitation of the passage. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. If we have God, we have all that we need. Put your hope in him. Take hold of eternal life. Enjoy the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are worth it. That you are worth our complete discipleship, our complete following of you. You are worth giving our entire heart to, our entire life to. All that you have blessed us with, we can give it back to you knowing that you are good and you will provide everything that we need. Lord, here and now, again and again, we, we ask that you would help us to loosen our grip on money and possessions and all the other things that go along with it, the status, and so on. Lord, you're going to have to reform and retrain our hearts over and over again so that we might detach ourselves from the ways of this world. We might uproot that insidious power of greed. Lord, it affects every one of us, I know, and yet you are so, so much better. The goal here is not rote obedience, but it's the transformation of our hearts, we know. And Lord, we give you permission to do that. Would you 
Change our hearts. Make us a generous people, God. Pray for anybody that's especially struggling with this message, that you would work on their hearts, that they would be able to to talk to somebody to get wisdom or clarity if there's a special issue. But Lord, we just pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, through prayer, through your spirit, through the fellowship of other believers. Would you help us to live a Christ-like life? Would you make us like Christ? Father, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.